I think those videos are really cool, don't you? I just, I, can you draw a tower that quickly? Because I certainly can't. They're brilliant. Uh, really, really like them. And we're in a series on Genesis. So we are, uh, th- this is week three of a series we've been doing called Origins and looking at the book of Genesis. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter six. So if you've got a Bible, can you scroll down to it or open it or whatever it is you do? And we're going to be in Genesis six. And we're going to look at the story of Noah today. And the nice thing about summarizing this, the story so far, when the Bible is only five chapters old, is it's like really short. Basically, God has created the world. Hey! And then human beings have sinned and fallen and turned their back on God. Oh. And then God has promised that he's going to bring salvation to the world through a snake-crushing child of the woman, who we call the seed. Yay! But unfortunately, it hasn't happened yet, and therefore brothers are killing each other and causing all sorts of bad things to happen. Oh. And at the st- as we turn to the start of this story, what we're finding is that the human race is unraveling, and violence and strife and wickedness is everywhere. Oh. But God is about to save a family and bring about a new creation. Hey! That's basically, it's got a slightly panto feel to it, but in many ways what Genesis is doing is setting up the struggle between good and evil that will dominate the rest of scripture and the rest of history, really. And we're going to see that in the story that we're reading today and throughout this series. Just before we read the scripture, I want to make a couple of comments um, that might help give the scope of what we're doing tonight. One of them is that if you are not a follower of Jesus at the moment, if you're new to Christianity or you're looking into Christianity but you're not a believer yet, then you may find this story very, very hard to believe. We just need to come up front and be honest about that. The story of Noah and a huge flood and animals and all that, it will just sound very weird and probably a little unbelievable. And it might help you, if nothing else, to know that there is actually quite a lot of different archaeological and literary evidence to suggest that a big flood hit Mesopotamia somewhere around 3000 BC. It's not just the Hebrew Bible that's saying that. Like you might be reading it in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. You might be reading it, as I'm sure some of you are right now, just on your phone, scrolling through the Gilgamesh epic or the Atrahasis epic or the Sumerian king list. But you might find ancient texts like that from other cultures as well saying there's a big, big flood in Mesopotamia around 3000 BC. Now, that doesn't prove that all of the ins and outs of the theology, that it means what we think it means as Christians. Of course, all of these civilizations interpret the event in different ways according to their theology. Some of them think this is one God. Some think it's lots of gods. There's one story in which they think the flood happens because the gods are trying to keep the noise down. Genuinely. So they're white because the gods are being kept awake by the human race. And you can read these stories. They will vary on their interpretation. But what they do say is this this actually probably happens. Um, and so that's one introductory comment that might help you make some sense of the story we're about to read. And then the other one is that there are two famous yet very bizarre stories on either side of the Noah story, which you just we're not going to touch tonight. They are there. Sorry, we just don't have time to do everything. There's a story about angels potentially having sex with women and producing giants. It's a weird story. And some of you didn't know it was there, and you're now going to spend the rest of the evening going, what the heck is that? And reading that. And that's just before the Noah story, but we just don't have time to go into it. And then the Babel, Tower of Babel, scattering of all nations story, which comes just after it. And we're not going to do that either, partly because we spent some time in our Invited series a few weeks back looking at that. If you have questions about that or anything else on science, faith, and weirdness in the beginning of Genesis, we're going to do our best to look at that in the seminar we're doing on Wednesday evening, which will be here at 7.45, I think, 
Is that right? Have I just given the wrong time? 7.45, yeah, here. Um, and we're going to look at lots of things like that if you're interested. But we're going to, other than that, we're going to punt those issues to the seminar and then just look at the story of Noah. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to begin at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, which is about 150 meters. Its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that's eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And now just jump down to chapter 7 and verse 11. We're going to read another few verses there. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. This passage describes the origin of three things that the human race has never experienced before. And that's the fun thing about the start of the Bible, is everything's new. Nowadays we go, oh, we know that, but they didn't, and this is new to them. The human race has never before seen these three things. The three things that we're going to look at, there's probably more actually, but the three things we're going to just zoom in on a bit tonight. This passage is the beginning or the origin of rest, of covenant, and of salvation or rescue. And we're looking at beginning, actually, the very first verse, we see the origin of rest, which you might think, that's a really obvious thing to have, to people to be resting. But actually, we haven't seen it until now in the Bible. God has been resting, humans haven't. But we have the origin of rest in this story. I wonder if you spotted it. The chances are many of us didn't. And there's a good reason for that. But the origin of rest, chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons. Did you spot it? The word rest appears in that verse four times. But of course, we don't read Hebrew. I don't either, by the way. So we don't notice it. Because the word Noah, the name Noah means rest. 
rest. That's what noach is. It's the, it's the word for rest in Hebrew. So it actually appears four times in this verse. These are the generations of rest. Rest was a righteous man, blameless. Noah, rest, walked with God, and rest had three sons. And a lot of cultures, names still have that kind of significance. Many of us are from cultures where names are taken very seriously. And probably some of you were named because your parents prayed and sought God and thought, I want to give the child this name. Some of you have got lots of names, and they all mean something. And it's, for some of us, it's part of our identity and our heritage and our destiny. Unfortunately, my culture, white English people do not very often have that. So my name, Andrew, means man. That is the most boring meaning I've ever heard because it's the only thing that everyone already knew about me when I came out of my mother. That's basically it, right? We look at him, we go, it's a boy. That's the only thing we know, and we're going to say man. Now, that is a boring, boring name in that sense, and I'm kind of sorry to all of you to have to put up with the fact that I'm called Andrew when you're from cultures where your name means something beautiful. But in, in many of our cultures, it's more like the biblical culture is more like the cultures many of you come from. In the Bible, names are very significant. They carry import and destiny and identity and significance. Eve means life giver. And she's the mother of all living people, including the snake crusher who's going to come. Abraham means father of many nations. It's powerful that he's called that. Moses means he draws out. He has been brought out of the water, and he will be the one through whom God draws out his people from slavery. Samuel, Shema'el, means he, he, God hears. Because that means a woman is praying to God, I want a baby, I want a boy, and God hears, and she says, I'm going to call him God hears. That's what happens. David means beloved. Abigail means my father is joy. Peter means rock. Jesus means the Lord saves. And Noah means rest. And that's very significant, because until now in this story that was only a few chapters old, the human race has not been at rest. There's been strife and violence and anger and fighting The earth is full of it, and judgment is coming. And so the fact that God is now going to deliver the human race through a man whose name means rest carries a promise with it. It means that out the other side of judgment, the human race will come to find a place of rest, peace, and security, and stability, and safety. And actually, that is literally what happens to the boat, the ark, On the other side of the flood, as the waters recede in chapter 8, verse 4, we read that the ark came to rest. It knowed on the mountains of Ararat. That's what God is saying in calling this man, a man whose name means rest. This is going to be a moment of rest and safety at the other end of the judgment that's coming upon the world. And in doing that, the origin of rest in this story points forward to another story in which God's faithful people are going to be brought through a watery judgment in an object that's going to protect them, actually, in many cases, and they're going to come through watery judgment and go out the other side to a place of rest. That's the story of the Exodus in miniature. The Noah story and the Exodus story, the same things going on in both. And that helps you make sense of some otherwise odd details. You may have read a kid's Bible for yourself perhaps, or maybe just to a child, and you've read it, and then you've wondered as you've been reading it, or they've asked you, why is it called an ark? Why isn't it just called a boat, right, or a ship? None of us do. I mean, I live by the sea. I never look out to sea and just go, oh, well, there's a, a lovely, look at that ark. I bet it's on its way to France. You just don't talk like that. Why do we call it an ark? And the answer is that there is only one other place in Scripture that the Hebrew word here, not the English word, but the Hebrew word for, is used, 
And it's this, there's this ark in Genesis, in Noah's ark, and there is one other place that word appears. And it appears in Exodus chapter 2. For the, it's the name for the basket that the baby Moses is put into the Nile inside. That's the only other place it's mentioned. It's also covered, the ark is covered in pitch. And the only other place in the Bible I've found that anything else is covered in pitch is the ark or basket that baby Moses goes into the Nile inside. It's covered in pitch. Why is that happening? Because the writer is trying to connect these two stories for us and help us see, look, this, do you see in both cases, the faithful people of God are put inside a vessel which goes into the water and then God brings them out safely and ultimately takes them to a place of rest. And in Israel's case, that place of rest is a land flowing with milk and honey. In Noah's case, it's a new world that gradually the waters subside and he steps out into, onto a mountainside and looks and thinks, wow, rest has come. The world is made new. Evil has been taken out. And so these, this story points forward in many ways to what will happen to Israel. And it also points forward to what will one day happen to you if you're in Christ. Because this story is a a picture of the fact that out the other side of judgment, a Sabbath rest is waiting for God's faithful people. And he will preserve them through the trouble and take them out so that they step out, as Noah did and as Israel did, into an inheritance in which when all is said and done, rest has taken over the world. That's the hope of the Christian as well. That's not just Noah's hope, that's yours if you're a believer in Jesus. This life can be exhausting. Maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's not for you. For me, this life is tiring sometimes. I'm like, I, I imagine Noah in his boat, and I think, wow, there's some parallels here. Noah's in a boat for months and months, and going, this is exhausting, and I'm fed up, and I'm seasick, and so is my family, and there's vomit everywhere, and these animals stink to high heaven, and I can't even stick my head out the window because it's raining outside, and it's just an oppressive... It's lurching all over the place. I want to get out. And then there comes a day when the ark comes to rest and the door opens and he steps out and he goes, oh, that's more like it. I never want to go back in there. That stinks. But look at this. Rest has come. And that is the same for the believer who perseveres through this life with its waters keeling all over and storms everywhere. And you think this life is full of exhaustion if you're anything like me I find parenting's hard work I find work is hard work I find commuting drains me I find it tiring caring for elderly relatives is exhausting right and you're going I want rest this is just keeling all over the place this is a mess come on just it's smelly and it's vomit ridden and I want to get out and one day we will and we'll step out into a world in which we all go oh None of that. Oh, I'm so pleased to leave that behind and all of that clutter. The world has now been made new and Jesus is all in all and creation has been cleansed from the evil that blighted it. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's the journey we're all going to be on. As believers in Jesus, that's our future. So the Bible teaches about our hope and it's not just Noah, it's all of us. This is the origin of rest. It's also the origin of covenant. Covenant is like an agreement between God and man. And in many ways, this is the most important of the three themes because it's the one that gives us a structure, in a way, for reading the whole of the rest of the Bible. 
So there are five covenants in the Bible, five big ones anyway, a couple of little ones that people make as well, but five big ones between God and humans, and this is the first one. It's the covenant with Noah. And this is where covenants begin, and it's a covenant, I will never again destroy everyone in a flood. And it's marked by a rainbow. It's the first of five. And some of you go, ah, oh, it's not very impressive. I didn't think I was going to be destroyed by a flood anyway, so what's the big deal? It's actually a very big deal because in telling the human race that God is not going to destroy us again, God is binding himself that to own, the only way he has left of removing the world of evil is to transform it and save it rather than destroying it. You see, the quickest way to get rid of evil is to get rid of people. And you've ever thought about that? Oh, people say to me sometimes, whether they're Christians or not, why does your God or why does our God not just get rid of evil? And depending on how impish and playful I'm feeling, I sometimes say, because then he'd have to get rid of you. First step on the list, and he'd have to get rid of me. Why? Because there's evil in here. There's anger and pride and lust and who knows what else. Stuff I don't want to tell you that happens in here. And probably, if you're honest, happens in yours as well. God, for God to get rid of evil, one of his two options is just to wipe everyone out. Star Wars moment, wipe them out, all of them. No! That's what God could do. Or he could transform human beings so that they don't want to do evil anymore. But those are his only two choices. And in making this promise, God is saying, option one is off the table. I'm never going to do it. I am only ever going to rescue the world from evil by transforming people. I am not going to wipe them all out. So I've got a, I don't know if you'd call it an allotment or not, a bit of land at the end of my garden. And uh, it's a bit of a mess at the moment because what happened was when we moved into the house, my father-in-law, who's quite handy and gardeny, said, oh, I'd like to turn it into an allotment. And we went, oh, okay, that's great. Off you go. That'd be nice. So he goes down there and he plants loads of stuff. But then last summer, he breaks his arm. So this year, he hasn't been able to tend the ground at all, and it's just turned into a, oh, it's terrifying. It's a horrible mess of things. I don't even go down there anymore because there's nettles the size of people that are trying to kill me when I go there. It's just completely overgrown. And you say to him, Richard, what should we do about this? And he says, well, you've really got two options. One of them is you can work really hard. You can take the weeds out. You can go around the plants one at a time. You can deal with it. You can put soil, you know, repot things and replant things and remove some things and put other things in and work really, really hard, and then it'll come about. But to be honest, the easier option, what I suggest you do, because he knows me and he knows I'm a bit lazy about these things, just cover the whole thing in black bin liners, and everything will die. And that's probably the best, best plan. God has those two options. Right? I'm going to rescue the world, which is going to be hard work. I'm going to transform every single thing. I'm going to repot everything. I'm going to work incredibly hard, and it'll be costly for me. Or I could just wipe everything out, cover it in bin liners, the ends. And in making this promise to Noah, I will make a covenant with you and putting a rainbow in the sky as a demonstration he will never flood the earth again. God is saying, I am never going to do the bin liner thing. That's off the table. My only route is to save people by transforming them. That's, I'm committing to that. And of course, that then raises the question, how? How are you going to do it? And that's what the next four covenants explain. So the covenant with Abraham is saying, I'm going to do it by blessing all the nations through the seed or the family of this man. And the covenant with Moses says, I'm going to make Israel kings and priests in the world to serve them. And then the covenant with David says, I'm going to do it through a king descended from David, who is going to rule forever. And the, covenant, the new covenant, he says, I'm going to do it by renewing the hearts of men and women by the Holy Spirit so that they don't even want to do evil anymore. 
And those four covenants, in many ways, answer the question, how is God going to keep the first one? Promising to destroy evil, yet without destroying you. There's a lot of hope in there, friends. There is. And that covenant, incidentally, is not just with people. It's actually with all of human- or the whole of creation. I don't know if you thought that, but it's a three-story arc. Lower, second, and third decks. And that might not mean much to some of us, but the ancient Hebrews saw the world as like a three-story world. They thought it's like almost a three-floor house. You have the waters beneath, you have the earth, you have the heavens above. And then, so if you have a three-decked boat into which all forms of animal life are gathered, it's not just we need to save the animals two by two. It's actually a way of saying we need to make sure that a new little creation is kept safe because the old one is being judged. So we're going to have a new world with its three floors, and we're going to bring all of forms of life into it. There is like a new creation in the middle of the old one that is going to be kept safe and then come out and repopulate the world. God is committed to the whole of creation and not just to human beings. A few weeks ago, it was Earth Day, and I was watching on the news and on my Twitter feed lots of people going out and marching and demonstrating, waving placards and flags about Earth Day. And many of them are saying, you know, refer to Mother Nature and things like that. And at the same time as I was looking at those things online, I was reading a book by G.K. Chesterton, the Catholic writer, 100 years or so back. And he made this comment that really jumped out at me because I'd just seen all these Earth Day parades. He made this comment. He said, nature is not our mother. Nature is our sister. And I was really struck me because I was watching this stuff and then thinking, that's really profound. Nature is not my mother. It's not that I don't honor nature as if it created me. God created me. As a Christian, I say, God is my father. That's where I get my life from. But nature is my sister. Nature descends from God like I do. Nature has been created by the same God, and he loves nature like he loves me. And actually, I have a responsibility as the brother or sister of nature to protect and cherish and nurture and look after her and protect her sometimes from people who would try and destroy her. That attitude, as I read it in that book, I thought, That comes straight out of Genesis 6. That's exactly what the kind of dynamic you get in this story where God makes a covenant not just with people but with everything and makes a rainbow to say, I'm not just going to not destroy you, I'm not going to destroy the world because I love the world and I want to redeem it and rescue it. And so I'm going to make an entire new creation go into a boat and be kept safe and then repopulate the world because I want creation to be saved and not just people. So this is the origin of rest, and it's the origin of covenant, and a covenant with the world, not just with us. And then thirdly and finally, the passage shows us the origin of salvation, of rescue, of God saving people. For all the wonderful moments in the story, my favorite line is this one, and the Lord shut him in. This is the first time in the Bible that God actually saves anyone, from what I can tell. God's talked about salvation, he's promised it. But he hasn't actually done it yet. He hasn't taken hold of an individual or family until now and taken them from a place of danger into a place of safety. But in this moment, that's what he does. And the writer makes it abundantly clear that this is an act of grace. It's an act of God's initiative on our behalf. Because God speaks to Noah and says, a flood is coming. And then he says, you're going to need to build a boat. And then he says, this is how you build a boat. No, 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 not like that. No, you do it like this. And then he says, now get into the boat. Now the water's coming. Now bring all of these things in. And as they're all in, the Lord shuts him in. That's the moment where, I mean, God's done that for me. God has said to me, Andrew, I'm warning you, there is judgment to come if you don't 
turn from your life of sin and follow me and I'm going to tell you what you need to do and how to do it but there is a moment where I might obey all I like but there's a moment where only God can save me there's a a part of the process that I can't do I can't shut myself in and there's a moment where I appeal to God and he sees me wanting to respond to him and he comes and he says I'm going to shut you in I am going to do the thing you can't do I will save you and I will protect you so that this boat will go to hell and back in the waters rocking to and fro reaching all over the place but I will make sure that during that time you will be kept safe until the waters have receded and you can step out into everlasting rest that's the promise he's made me that's how he saves me God is the agent of salvation he's the one who puts his hand around you and rescues you and puts his seal on you which in Christian terms is like the gift of the Holy Spirit like a seal that says you're mine and you're not going anywhere because I have guarded you and will continue to guard you and that's why 1 Peter 3, if you know that passage, much later in the Bible, the Apostle Peter says, the ark flood story is a picture of salvation and of baptism because the people of God cry out for help and are in danger and we go down into the waters and then we come out the other side, out of the waters and God puts a seal on us and he preserves us and he shuts us in and he guarantees our safety until the day when we step out into rest. Right? We're like Noah. We have been saved from judgment. And we are being saved from the judgment around us all the time and the water, crazy, stormy chaos out there. And one day we will be saved into a world in which there is no evil left. And we can look at God and say that there are past and present and future dimensions of this act of rescue. And I can see all of them in Noah. And I can rejoice that he's done the same thing for me. And one day we will step out into a new creation, free of all evil, and enter into rest. And we will not just see a covenant and a rainbow, but we will see the covenant keeper himself clothed in rainbows of living colors. That's a beautiful moment. And I sometimes imagine Noah's expression as he walks down the gangplank. I don't know what he was doing. He might have just been going, hmm, it's a bit nicer today. But my suspicion is he was doing something bigger than that. You've been in a boat for months, and suddenly the ark comes to rest, and you step out. Just imagine Noah singing as he walks down the gangplank. Our God saves. Wow. This is a beautiful new world. Our God saves. Like the evil's kind of gone. There is hope in your name. Wow, you're the one who kept your promise. And I trust you like I didn't know you before. Morning turns. Wow, it was awful in there. There was a lot of morning and it really stank. And I'm pleased to be out. To songs of praise. Right, guys, let's get the animals together. We're going to offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to the Lord for rescuing us. Our God saves. Our God saves. It's good for us sometimes to go back to the gangplank in our own lives. Just to think again, what has God saved me from? What is he daily saving me and preserving me through? And what will he one day save me into that I inherit this everlasting rest. And it's good to look forward to that day when we're all going to sing, not just that we've been saved, but that the entire cosmos has been saved and renewed in line with the promise of the covenant-keeping God. Amen? It's good to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the kind of God who makes promises and keeps them. We thank you that you are the kind of God who wants to lead us into a place of rest 
and security and stability and safety and that you've promised you will. We thank you that you are the kind of God who makes and keeps covenants. And we thank you that you are the kind of God who saves, not just in the past, but in the present and one day in the future. We are so thankful, Savior God, that you will take us out into rest one day. And until that day, would you help us hold on and trust you, knowing that you have shut us in and that you will keep us safe until the day the doors open and we walk down the gangplank and there is nothing left but song. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.